Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It's September 14th. Uh, we have a interesting show today in that we usually talk, I would say, about like whatever current events in the way that podcasts talk about current events. This is not to denigrate the things that we have been doing in the past or to other to denigrate other podcasts, but just to say that we would like to change it up a little bit today and talk about, you know, I, I've been thinking a lot about this concept of... Uh, forgetting and it's just because I've been rereading a lot of stuff I read in graduate school mostly fiction about uh you know about this idea of memory and forgetting and so uh there's like a section of I think this is true maybe I you know ironically enough don't really remember but I do remember there was a period <laughs> of time where we read <laughs> where we read speak memory uh by uh yeah. Nabokov and which is his memoir, um, you know, which is really just like a meta memoir about the idea of memory itself. And then we read a lot of Sebald, who is, a, you know, I don't, is an author who died tragically in a car crash in the Audubon. But he was sort of the foremost guy who wrote about, I think, the way that Germany as a country dealt with the memory of, of World War Two and the Holocaust. And um, the reason why I was thinking about that was just because it seems like we had the 19th anniversary of uh, 9-11. You know, we've had a lot of retrospectives when it's all put against the, you know, what everyone is calling, quote unquote, this moment, right? But which we can just say like a time of uprising, social unrest, whatever, that it seems like we're transitioning out of like a period where a reference point, direct reference point is 9-11, and we're going to be transitioning into a point where everyone's most recent direct reference point is going to be what happened this year in, you know, 2020, the worst year ever, or whatever, right? Like, but, yeah. you know, that's how people process things, whether or not we can, you don't have to scold people about, like, the arbitrary nature of years. <laughs> oh, in my head, I always do that. I'm just like, it's just a year, bro. You know, like, who cares? January 1st or January 1st, it doesn't matter. What about the Mayan calendar? Like, you know, you know <laughs> that's about that. But um, uh, I wanted... You sing it I, in that voice, too. Huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly, in my own head. Um, let's, but, you know, I have Tammy and Andy, as always, to talk about this. And I don't know, like, uh, let's, 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 let's take a little bit of time and catch up with each other first. Uh, I feel like I'm uh, doing like a CBT session here. Have you ever done that? <laughs> What's CBT? I haven't never done it. Cognitive, Cognitive behavioral, behavioral th therapy. I had to do it for like two weeks for, uh, I had this period where I was having like these horrific anxiety attacks and I had to go to oh CBT for eight hours a day. Oh and God. it was group CBT. It was Eight exactly like this. Oh, yeah, it was horrible. Holy but it shit. fixed it within really? like a week, which is amazing. It was That's like incredible. Um, but and it ended up being like, you know, obviously some sort of not obviously, but I had some sort of like uh, chemical imbalance thing going on. Um, but Whoa. that's what CBT sounds like. It's like, well, you know. Like, before we do this, let's take some time to yeah. catch up with one, one another. So, Tammy, um, so yeah, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing well. I, uh, I just got back from a weekend in the woods of Idaho where I had no reception. It was kind of nice. Wow. Are you going, are you going out every week, every weekend? I'm trying to go, yeah. Just yeah. like, you know, see America, <laughs> sleep in the back of my car. It's been going okay. Well, what's your car setup? 
Um, I have, so I brought my parents aging CRV and we took out the back seats and then I have like a camping mattress back there. It's actually pretty okay. Mm. So I don't have to mess with tent setup and yeah. So you didn't, you didn't do a thing where you like converted the back and built shelves and stuff like that. So I I think my dad's going to do that this year. That's like his project. (laughs) That's like the whole like blueprint for it. Yeah. I know. Um, that, that's, I have a friend who, uh, took a bus in upstate New York and he did the conversion of it. Yeah. Like, uh, Chris McCandless and into the wild, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, he, uh, he was so excited about it and he had bought this bus and midway through and because he was converting and I was like, is it worth it? And he was like, ask me in six months because apparently <laughs> it's it's really hard to convert a bus yeah. into a living space like and a I, bus. wow yeah and he's like very handy and like if there is like if i had a list of five people i know who thought could actually convert a bus into a living space he would be one of the five <laughs> apparently it was hard and yeah it ends up being I, really expensive too you know <laughs> i have fantasies about that too instead what i do is i buy accessories for this uh electronic bike i bought and oh right! It, yeah, and I, my dream is to one day sleep on the back of my electronic bike. Oh, bike packing. Um, Andy, uh, Andy, how are you doing? I'm good. Um, this weekend, I went up to New York to see a few friends for a day, and uh, so it was the first time in the city Aww. since it, uh, since the coronavirus broke out. It's it's interesting. It seems like it's under control there. I mean, yeah. for the most part, people have adjusted to just hanging out outside. Apparently, like social customs, like not drinking alcohol in parks, is like kind of ignored these days. Yeah, more I was told. So, is it? Is it like, or is it? Or is that also like racially enforced? Because that yeah. was always like the. Yeah, it was. A, mean, it was like a nice Brooklyn park. It was, you know. Okay. But no, I think it's relaxed. Like, yeah. Yeah. Overall, yeah. that's what I was told. Yeah. Like, like don't it's don't different. sweat these things. When Kamala Harris was the district attorney of san francisco and i was living in san francisco there was this big thing where all the white people could sit in dolores park and smoke all the weed they wanted and they would have like these guys walking around selling weed candy and then there was you know a lot of people who brought up and they had this thing called beta breakers every year which i think they still do it's a 5k race or whatever and everyone would just get hammered i've never actually seen public (laughs) drunkenness like that in my life like you would walk wow. down the panhandle and there'd be people like humping like in the <laughs> on the side of the street and you'd see just score like 20 30 people per block towards the end just passed out on the ground you know <laughs> it was terrible well the first year i went i was like 24 years old and i had a great time you know and then <laughs> by, the, by the third year i went i was like this is terrible i don't want to do this because like you know you have to start drinking at seven o'clock in the morning <laughs> after they finish running right they're not doing it no 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 the whole point is everyone dresses up in costumes right uh-huh. and then you get like SantaCon. it's like santa con plus uh saint patrick's day but also way 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 more uh way more drunk than any of those that i've been to oh my god and uh and much more and that was i think back when like some of the people here in san francisco the young people were still trying to fit into some sort of san francisco vibe you know that they had sort of yeah, Free, so like, Silicon let's, Valley let's, let's be weird. Yeah. yeah. It, but, you know, these are also Silicon Valley workers. Right. But I would just say <laughs> that the 
the imprint of what San Francisco used to be in their heads yeah. as a as a point of pressure on how they would exhibit their oh behavior while putting on costumes and drinking so like was much higher than it is now. Levels. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, I why are we talking about beta breakers? I just woke up. I don't remember this. Um, uh, the sort of you said drinking. public drinking, Bacchanalian public drinking. Oh yeah, yeah. But you know, the truth of it of course is that white people in San Francisco could drink and get high all they wanted in public and you know i i could i don't i could just carry a beer down the street i don't think any i would have ever thought about it twice in the mission in the parts of the mission that i lived in at least um which were very very latino at the time but you know it was just because i was not a latino person at the time who the police would turn over and be like are you gang affiliated are you gang yeah are you gang affiliated um but you know that that those were very real distinctions that yeah. happened there yeah anyway this is not to call you racist, Andy, but, you know, have you considered the yeah, fact no. that perhaps this is racialized? <laughs> I didn't think about that. I mean, I don't know. What, yeah. Tam, have you heard, like, in New York City, are these things being selectively enforced, or is it pretty much the whole city gets to do whatever it wants? When I left Brooklyn, it felt relaxed overall, but yeah, it's. Tr- I'm sure there was differential enforcement. You know, there always is, yeah. but there I do think is. their baseline was different. Yeah, because there was like all the you know street side cocktails and stuff to try to save the bars, right. etc. Or people would say that the new mask laws would be just another pretext for police to kind of target, right? Right. Black yeah, they. Are, there was some of that for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and that always came up, of course, like around uh, you know like Labor Day and the West Indian Day Parade. See, that's mm. right. Yeah. Like that's where the questions about enforcement in New York would actually come up all the time. Um, yeah, I lived on Eastern Parkway for a very long, you know, that's where the last apartment I had in New York City was. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it was, uh, Caribbean neighborhood for those who don't know. Well, it's more like where the parade ends. Like mm-hmm. that's where our apartment was like, right where the parade ends. And yeah, oh, that part. I mean, I, yeah, it was great. And then it, it was, uh, loud and <laughs> <laughs> very loud, but yeah, but I think the general argument that like you can't enforce things differentially for different people, groups of people is total. It, like, of course, like how, how could you ever argue about that? And yeah, yeah, they would always be like, Oh, there's so much violence around the parade. And you're like, well, mm-hmm. look, there's violence around every type of place where everybody drinks and gets shit faced for three straight days, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. Right. Yeah. Like when hockey teams win titles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> exactly they used to burn couches all over like chapel hill and durham whenever one of the basketball teams would win the national championship like the frat guys would oh just take all the yeah. couches out of their house and burn them um and then just go buck wild all night <laughs> uh, but yeah it's it's uh it's it's uh anyway that's a long introduction but, you know, I think it was interesting. So we will go on to our actual selected topic here, which is uh, the question of memory and things that we're forgetting. I wanted to start this off by reading you a quote from The Emigrants, which is uh, Sebald's. Oh, so I don't know. Is it his third book or something like that? I don't remember. But uh, the chronology doesn't really matter. I think it's the one that people have read the most outside of maybe Austerlitz. But, like, I, I think it's probably The Emigrants, right? Tammy, yeah, have you read I The Emigrants? So. Yeah. Okay. Um Memory, he added in a postscript, often strikes me as a kind of dumbness. It makes one's head heavy and giddy as if one were 
not looking down at the receding perspectives of time, but rather down from a great height from one of those towers whose tops are lost in, to view in the clouds, right? So that's that's the first thing I wanted. Um, and Sebald's work around, you know, around the emigrants, around rings of Saturn, around Auschwitz, I would say everything that he wrote is about this idea about how quickly people can forget things and how quickly a people, a nation can move on. Like, how do you move on? You have to basic his argument, I think, which he sort of shows through writing about, you know, actual buildings that used to exist that don't exist anymore, like countrysides that have been you know, taken over by the uh, by the wilds. And also, you know, buildings that do still exist and have just been completely repurposed is that people do forget things very quickly. Um, they do sort of move on. They do create a new mythology and the things that cannot be like uh, reconciled are just actually wiped from the collective memory. So this is something I think about all the time in terms of Trump, right? Like when this is all over, when Trump is over, yeah. uh, how are we going to deal with it? And, you know, this is something I think that both of you have a lot of expertise in, uh, even though not specifically, but Tammy, you know, like in your reporting, Andy, and writing about, about, China, right? Like in a country that has had its own revolutions, that's had its own changes in government. Like how, how do these things happen? So Andy, I just want to start by asking you, like in how, how, how does this function in China? Like how does a collective memory function? Like, um, uh, there's a lot of interesting stories about how you have these major traumatic events. Cultural revolution, of course, is the one that probably most people have heard of, but I think even before that you had uh, the, with the communist revolution itself, there was a lot of like land being redistributed and a lot of people's, a lot of families stuff was taken from them, right. By the government and redistributed, Uh, you know, all, you know, from a certain perspective, you could say for the greater good, but for those individual families, it sucks. And a lot of, I think a lot of people have said like, what would happen, let's say with, the cultural revolution 20 years later might have been actually like a lot of the stuff that was bottled up kind of bursting back mm-hmm. out. Right. And I think, I don't know. It's, I don't know. Uh, so it's cultural revolution, right. Which ends in the 1970s and also winds up with a lot of people going through these traumatic events, all sorts of stories we still haven't really um, kind of fully accounted for. Uh, yeah. All sorts of people trace, at least their families trace, um, the the 60s to the 70s as this really big traumatic moment that probably in a lot of different ways gets channeled um, into different political uh, directions. So for instance, I think, you know, something we've talked about on this show is a lot of uh, immigrants from China might have not not always like right wing, but perhaps like they're not pro China, pro communist party. And a lot of that could just be attributed to directly or indirectly feeling like the cultural revolution or that whole period, like didn't help their family at all. And um, they, they would rather, so they kind of react against it. Officially, the government has tried to use, the government has tried to create nice package narratives of what happened, but only to a point and, and basically to, and I think this is kind of in common with everyone else. They try to talk about memory and history to the extent that it can legitimize what's currently going on. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, Deng Xiaoping and pretty much every leader since then, to the extent they have talked about something like the cultural revolution, it is to, in order to legitimize their own 
power, but they don't want to talk too, uh, about it too much, right? Because if you talk about it too much, it unravels things. So I think like with, in terms of like an analogy with the US, I think, uh, you know, and something we might talk about with um, Paul Krugman later, that I think Trump, the memory of Trump or the memory of COVID, I feel like we don't want to jinx this because, you know, Trump could still be in power for four more years. Yeah, um, we're not assuming that he doesn't lose, right. but, you know, at some point he won't be in power yeah. anymore. Right. The, the memory is going to be shaped almost entirely by, at least by elites, right? Entirely by their own political side, right? And it'll be about, like, um, making a point about how they, how they're better than Trump or how Trump was this, you know, exception, uh, a, a, like a bad apple, right? But that the current democrat or republicans are better um so it'll be exceptionalized and kind of i think excised mm -hmm. from any sort of deeper you know contemplation about like how the how the fuck did this happen and like how, how was i behaving and like to what extent was i trying to you know profiteer off of this like crazy crazy period in our history uh, tammy what do you think i was talking to my dad a few years ago about the different periods of history in his life and he I was surprised to hear him say that he indexed his life basically to like obviously war and migration here but then 9-11 for him like he was like that was a moment that changed the way that I feel about this country and the way that I kind of move in the world um, mm. he's not an expressive person so I was kind of surprised by the reflection involved in that but it was you know, well, even what, just what for like, changed. What yeah, exactly. Changed? Like even for just like a working class guy like him, like, you know, kind of the obvious things like the security stuff in our daily lives, you know, the way that a kind of surveillance state makes itself known after 9-11, like from obviously the TSA checkpoint issues, but just like a kind of general feeling about, um, you know, the government sort of being much more involved in your life. And that kind of combined with the Internet, which was another thing that he mentioned. And yeah, I feel like you in your introduction to transition and say we're going from a 9-11 era into a Trump era, I think is exactly right. Because to me, also in my adulthood, that this feels like a different moment. In terms of how we remember it, I mean, I, I share Andy's skepticism about, you know, the way that elites will process this. And that frightens me. I think I have one question I have for him and for you, Jay, is... You know, what is the role of like historiography and critical studies in realism and, you know, kind of militating against that? Because I do feel like unlike in previous decades, we have more tools and more people like telling histories from below and stuff. So just to try to be a little optimistic about like hmm. what is our role as leftists and like reclaiming and reprocessing that history? But I th I'll say that for the Trump era, I think one of the hardest things is just going to be that there's so much you know, kind of the relentlessness of it. Yeah. Um, like even the 9-11 era, I can point to kind of discrete acts and discrete moments. And then, and, you know, like there's a Guantanamo, there's Patriot Act there, you know, and for Trump, it's such a massive and comprehensive assault on every single facet of our democracy um, that it's just like, just as it's been overwhelming so far in his term, I don't even know what, how we're going to talk about that. Yeah, it's uh, I the, I want to focus in on the one thing that you said about how we have more tools now and how the conversation might be shaped differently. I think that's true, and yet it also strikes me. And what I've been thinking about this is that like after nine eleven and after Patriot Act, after 
And a lot of these extraordinary rendition programs mm -hmm. began after, like, I don't know, two wars, right? The 2004 election was seen as a great referendum on whether or not Bush, who was characterized at the time in the similar ways, you know, he's so dumb, he can't talk, you know, like, uh, he says crazy stuff. Yeah. He's uh, controlled by, like, a cabal of evil people. At that point, it was, you know, like, Dick Cheney and Paul Wolfowitz and, like, the neocons, and now Trump, it's, like, white nationalists and... Um, Stephen Miller and used to be Steve Bannon, I guess not Steve Bannon so much anymore, but Miller, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, that the great referendum on America is going to once again be a election. And we've swapped out John Kerry for uh, Joe, Joe Biden, oh my God. which to me seems like a totally, uh, totally equal swap. Yeah. Now, um, you worse. can argue that Trump is worse than Bush. And, I, you know, I think that Trump is probably worse than Bush in terms of a lot of things. But um, I do think that even if that is true and that, you know, like did that, that I thought that and I thought, well, is that does that mean that we should despair and that we're just going to lose? You know, I, I yeah. remember being in graduate school and I was more or less like as it was a time in my life where I was really fucked up because I was like 23 years old. I was probably drinking too much. That's why I don't remember what I read at the time. And my, I had this one friend in grad school and we felt totally isolated from most of the other people because we were the youngest people in graduate school and everyone else like 27, 28. And we, were, we had just gotten out of college and we came into class uh, and everyone was crying. It was the day after the election. And I was so bewildered by it. You know, I was like, why are you guys crying in class? Because, you know, didn't you expect Bush to win? Like, didn't you think that we were going to lose again? Um, I don't know. I don't know if I've grown up since then. You know, like, I don't know if... Uh, How did you react in 16? I mean, I was... I, it was sort of like a... I just was laughing, you know, in a horrible <laughs> way. Like, not in like a, ha, this is funny way, but in a, yeah. holy shit, I can't believe... I thought that Bush... You could ask my wife about this or people who knew me. I always thought that Trump was going to win. And yeah. uh, it yeah. was based entirely on me having a job at the time where my job was to just go to the middle of the country and talk to people. Yeah. And I just didn't see any overlap between that, what I saw there and, um, what yeah. the press was saying, you know, and that doesn't obviously like that's anecdotal evidence versus like yeah. polling. And I shouldn't be too reliant on that. But the gap was so big that I felt like something mm -hmm. was strange. Yeah. You know, I was just like, I was like, yeah, usually these two things will correlate in some sort of way that makes sense in my head. Um, but I don't know. So Tammy, I do think that we have more tools, but I think that the overall, like, I think like we as individuals who on the left have more tools, but I think overall the thing that the apparatus that we have to put all of our faith into is generally like once again, a presidential election. Yeah. Wait, Tammy, by tools, do you um, mean like blogs and social media people can... <laughs> I was speaking Art. more abstractly, like subaltern histories. Uh -huh. um, but, you know, I, I agree that, um, yeah, there is a kind of overarching apparatus, but there's also social movements from below. And so what is, you know, I think incorporating a kind of historical reevaluation, different understandings and narratives is going to be so important, even if we, I don't know who the we is, but even if Biden wins this November, like we have so much repaired work to do. Um, yeah, because like, but I I think that that's right. Like I I think that we have more access to all these things in two thousand and four two thousand four. Like there's no there's no movement that people felt 
that they could participate in yeah, at all. It has changed like, There a lot. is literally just the election. Um, you know, the idea, even back then, 2004, these were all the jokes, Andy, I come up with about you passing out the, uh, passing out socialist oh, newspapers yeah. <laughs> on 116th and Broadway, you know, as people walk into the gates of Columbia, yeah. like that's where, cause that's what, that was the, that was the left at that point. It was, I mean, it was the, like uh, five dudes with beards who were in their fifties passing out anti, anti-war protests, <laughs> stuff to Columbia. Anti-war protests were pretty big. I think it was like, yeah, oh, for large, sure. Right? Yeah. 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 I'm talking, I think, about like but it wasn't a like general left. It organized, right? Well, it was organized, and it was much bigger than Black Lives Matter. I think, in terms of oh, okay. like total numbers, and so like, the, of course, I, but I don't think that that was an expressively, I, like, I, I think that we have probably more types of different movements now that mm-hmm. people can feel invested in, and I do think social media has made it so that these voices are louder. Mm-hmm. Like, there, the anti-war movement was huge. Right yeah. at the time, right. and uh, it could be ignored. I guess I would put it that way. Like there is a way to ignore that and to block it out, especially for like people who you know were in the media or people who were uh, involved in politics. Now I don't think that they can ignore those things quite as easily, and I think mm-hmm. actually a smaller number of people can make something that is impossible to ignore. So I think that that is a tool. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, and I. I guess the other part of it is sometimes we win and sometimes we lose, you know, and there is not always like a logic to the numbers of people involved. And, but I do feel like since, especially the great, cause there were, there were the protest, the war anti-war protests. And then in 2006, there was an incredible immigrant rights uprising also where we had like millions of people in the streets. That was extremely memorable. We didn't win that, you know, but then I think since the Great Recession and Occupy Wall Street and all the stuff we've seen since, I do think there is a stronger protest infrastructure. Um, yeah. I, so I do hope that makes a difference. But, you know, again, we don't – there isn't a, a kind of um, if this, then always to social movements. Uh, Andy, like what, what is the what, – just go back what we were talking about. Like what is the – how do China, the Chinese tell the story of the Cultural Revolution? Oh, wow. That's a good question. What, what do they say about it? <laughs> what does she say? <laughs> yeah. What's the state say? Like, you know, not not the Chinese, but what does the state yeah, say? Yeah. That's a good question. I don't I don't really know if they have any like, I don't know. I, sh- I could research this, but I, I feel like the, the main MO is like to downplay it and mm-hmm. to talk about how that was a lot of mistakes, a lot of going too far in the left direction, which is like arguable. Was that like an like a was that a left excess thing or was that, you know? was just like this power play among the elites in the communist party. Um, I think, I mean, like I said, I think the MO of the, of the party since Mao has died since the eighties has been to say that Mao was um, not, that was a mistake, but we shouldn't repeat the mistakes of going too far. And that's why we need law and order law and order. That's right. That's American, but um, (laughs) like the whole MO of like this current, like mixed, socialism with capitalism stuff is about being pragmatic and practical and being non-ideological and if you're too ideological then you get things like the cultural revolution but in terms of um actual like accounting for the you know what actually happened at the time um in terms of like stuff you know like the the lost years of education and like a functioning society for a lot of people that has never really there's been like no apology as such right there were just like uh they're scapegoating of certain you know, people like um, 
I don't know if you got all have heard of the Gang of Four, like not the yeah. the punk band, right? But uh, which is named after the sort of inner circle of Mao's people. They were kind of scapegoated for all of it, and they were just hoping to say like, let's just have a trial, let's you know make them guilty and kind of you know, wrap it up here and just like move on with her life. But yeah. I think the enduring legacy has been this sense of like we shouldn't be too ideological. We should just be practical, which of course is an ideology, right? Of being basically cooperating with you know capitalism and global capitalism. But- but implicit in that is the admitting that that was a mistake. That, yeah, right. Yeah, but they're and they're doing so in a way that's you know um, ideologically directed in a certain direction, right? Of, yeah. Of you know. That that's interesting. Do you remember anything in American history where America has generally been like that was a mistake? Japanese. Uh, uh, yeah, hundreds of years later, only uh, right internment, <laughs> yeah. slavery. Um, Iraq. I mean, Iraq War. Don't you feel like that was like? Nixon, I guess, right? Nixon. But I feel like the consensus now is like Iraq War was a mistake from all sides. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. even Trump yeah. ran on again. I'm right on that. And I was also going to say, like, you know, this isn't a social move, but social movement as such. But I think the the anti-war stuff was the main sentiment on the left in the U.S. and that did power help power Obama. Yeah, Vietnam. Oh, yeah, Obama Vietnam versus is... Hillary came down to who who voted for the Iraq War and who didn't. Did it? I think that was a big part of it. I think that was okay. I think that was influential, yeah. And the promises um, to shut down Guantanamo, all that stuff that was kind of yeah. <laughs> I've forgotten all of, of that. that didn't go very well, but um, my brain has been totally clouded or my memory has been totally clouded by just like identity politics. It's like, well, I think people <laughs> wanted to I think people wanted to vote for the Thanks. black guy instead of the white woman. <laughs> yeah, that's part of it. It's connected uh, though. I mean, that's the thing, right? Yeah. Um, uh, all right. Well, uh, that's that's. What about this question then, Tammy? Like, do you do you think that like, uh, how do you think that we're gonna remember this era? Like, how do you do you think that we're just gonna forget it? Like, do you, or do you think that there's going to be a sort of truth and reconciliation oh type God. of thing going on Sorry. in the way? Did you say that Sean King is like is trying to start like a truth and reconciliation like panel or something like that? Anyway, for whatever. what it's for like, the Trump I, era? I, I, for his own, uh, for the own shit for, he did. <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> his, own, his own trial. <laughs> I think Twitter is a truth and reconciliation panel yeah. for Sean King. But, um, but um, I, you know, like I, th- it, that's a real tragedy, by the way. Like I, I used to have a very like sort of, you know, Sean King does more good than he does bad type of attitude about it, and now it just seems like yeah. I don't know. Like, what were the last like, few straws there, though? I mean, the nonprofit corruption stuff, or the plagiarism, yeah. or and then that newspaper he started, but like really never. Strange. Yeah, the star. news network. Yeah, the right. media network that he started and mismanaged. It just seems like the kindest thing to say is that he's so bad at ma- managing things that he's. You know, at this point, it's negligence for him not to to put himself in charge of anything. Like that's the kindest interpretation. You yeah. know, the real yeah. interpretation is what everybody else says, which is that you know there is a, a big element of grift to all of this, uh, which is too bad because he was very pro Bernie. Um, but yeah. Tammy, no. not to not to sink too deep into <laughs> Sean King, but what do you think? Do you think we'll forget all this? Like, do you think in ten years that we'll have you know fuzzy memories about this entire time and just never talk about it? I don't think, I think in 10 years, we'll remember. In 20 or 30 years, I don't know what like your guys' kids' history books are going to say about this period. Like that to me is frightening. There's always cycles because when you read about the 50s and 60s, you think the 50s and 60s, like, oh, this is like, 
you know, right after World War II, of course, everyone was talking about it. But no, like nobody talked about World War II um, until for decades. Right. And because it was too traumatic. And um, and and uh, well, I think I was listening to like Nice White Parents, the podcast. Right. And uh, and they were talking about how in the 60s there was still like no actual discussion about race in the country, which sounds crazy to us. Right. Because we think like, oh, of course, there's all this 60s where this you know, in the early 60s before, like, the, the civil rights movement. Yeah. Uh, right. Like, of course, like, Brown v. Board and, you know, people who were alive during Reconstruction and perhaps even slavery were still alive. But um, that's our perspective retroactively, right? But people living through it at the time, they just kind of want to move on. And I don't think, I think, you know, whenever, you know, Trump does not get elected again, um, I think the year after, people are just going to be sick about talking, sick of talking about it. And but I'm not going to talk about it. But don't you think people are going to talk about it in different ways? I mean, it won't all be indexed to Trump, but it'll be like it was also the era of the coronavirus. It was an era of Chinese ascendancy. It was there are different things, I think. That, and, you know, there was an I don't know what's going to happen to our endless wars. But, you know, on the foreign policy front, too, thinking about, you know, kind of questioning American empire. Like, I do think there's has been a lot of stuff that will be processed in different ways. I don't know that it'll all be connected to him. Yeah. What do you think the things are? Like, what are the things that we'll remember if you had to make a make your power rankings top 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 three list of things that will that people in twenty years will be fixating on in this in this era? Let me COVID. take if we yeah. I mean, I think if we take it as kind of blurring into some of Obama's administration coming into Trump's like. The economic crisis, not just the recession, but what we have in our what our economy is doing, what it looks like, this incredible wealth disparity, monopolization. Um, You're saying dating back to 08? Starting then, yeah, okay. certainly. You know, I mean, I think it's a longer pattern. Obviously, that's taken for decades to develop, mm-hmm. essentially. But you know, what we see now, like this kind of Bezos economy, like that to me is like significant. Um, certainly, COVID. Hopefully, Black Lives Matter, but I don't know. That one to me is well, there's, a big question that, mark. That's the question I'm circling around to, which is that will we remember? How will we remember? You know, the uprisings of 2020. Will they be significant in the future? Because it seems like people are writing about it and thinking about it in a way that where the answer is obviously yes, and I think the answer is obviously no, <laughs> yeah. because I think that that's the history well, of. Why all do of we this. remember the '68 riots? Uh, because there are riots. Uh-huh. And you don't think these are. Do people do people really remember sixty eight though, other than like you yeah. know, like left leftists or historians? Like most yeah, they people do because the on US... the Well on the right it's different. They remember it, but it's a bogeyman, right? Mm-hmm. For an un right. you know uncontrolled do, left or whatever. Do they do they I think that do they remember it as much as they remember a type of like uh aesthetic militancy that is expressed in like the Black Panthers or, mm-hmm. you know, or in the Symbionese, like liberation, you know, not those two things are the same, yeah, but that no, it I seems understand. like in the visual language of how we remember these things, which is, you know, always a visual language mm-hmm. that the images that most people recall from that period of time are not burning buildings and Watts, you know, yeah. on fire. But I think it's more of like these sort of fashionable images of, of, of militancy. Like I, have you seen that? I, I watched this like two nights ago. Have you seen that? Agnes Varda documentary yeah, about the about the black about the Black Panthers. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that, Andy? No. Okay, so it's like a thirty minute documentary, and it's all verite footage that I think probably mm-hmm. Agnes Varda shot herself in mm-hmm. Oakland in yeah. uh, the Free Huey moment of the Free Huey 
movement uh, with Black Panthers. And um, it's interesting because Agnes Varda is basically saying, like, is fixating so much on the way that they dress and then the way that they present themselves and how cool it is and how there's like, you know, like there's dancing for free Huey and there's bands and everything like that. And it almost feels offensive at the time, <laughs> you know, when you're watching it, you're just like this, this, well, Agnes Varda is French, right? Like this mm-hmm. French lady has, you know, she's like aesthetic sort of downplaying. Yeah. yeah. She's down, yeah. she's turning into aesthetics, but I actually think that that's how we remember the Panthers right now, whether that's right or wrong. Right. And Panthers themselves, I think have like a history that, you know, it's valorized in a way that I think is probably a little bit too valorized, right? Given um, a lot of what happened in the years following. But like, I think that at that moment, that's what we remember, right? We remember that moment of militancy is expressed in our visual memory through the black leather jacket and black parade and the Black Panther flag. But also guns think, and riots. And I th- I no, no, I, I agree. But I don't think it is the, I don't think it has, I don't think it, that image, this is way too abstract, but this is how, you know, this is how like generally I think memory works. It's just that I don't think that that image is attached to any political idea. I think it's just an image, right? Like we just remember it as an image. Oh. We don't confront it with any sort of idea. I think it's totally ungrounded from any sort of political anchor. Yeah. I don't know. My question with today's that. image is like, Today's movement is like, what will that image be? You know, will it be, will it be the police precinct in Minneapolis burning down? I don't think so. You know, I think it'll be like something like a Black Lives Matter street sign, you know, yeah. like where they painted the street. Yeah. And I think that it'll become inert in that same sort of way. It'll be like this footprint or this footnote to history yeah. during this time. Mm, I think it would be a mistake to not think that the 68 riots made an impact that was more than, you know, icon driven for the right. I think conservatives have a very firm collective memory about what that meant as a threat to their way of life. And there were lots, there's lots of stuff, you know, the white flight patterns, like all of the kind of welfare stuff, the chatter that happened after that, like that is real. And I think if you also talk to white conservatives now about it, I mean, I can't tell you how many weird conversations I've had over the past couple of weeks (laughs) in Montana (laughs) With people ask, like, if I say, you know, they'll ask where you're from. And I'm sometimes afraid to say New York City. So I'll say, like, oh, you know, Washington State. And then they'll be like, oh, were you stuck in the riots? Oh, um, yeah, like, yeah. This well, happens quite I, I'm a not... lot, you know. And it's like they feel like they need to, like, escape. Wait, what, what, what are they referring to when they say the riots? They're talking this, about Chaz or the yeah. Portland riots or, you know. So it's very, it's very interesting, you know. And I think that whole, like kind of Moynihan, you know, moment like that, is, that is real. Well, I don't, I, I'm not saying that they don't have an effect. I think they have a profound societal effect. I just mean around how they'll be remembered. Yeah. I mean, right? you're talking I about like, a Peter Jennings documentary about like America by the decade. What they'll show is like aestheticized, stylized um, footage of like the March on Washington, right. Or like the yeah. Black Panthers, but they won't show um, like the riots. Well, they might show like a, a snippet of it, right? But not- I, I think about this because I was watching the NFL for eleven hours yesterday, <laughs> and they kept showing this ad, the NFL's like you know woke ad, being like we're in a new era of wokeness, and they kept showing protest images, and one of the images that both Nike and the NFL have both used, which I noticed, is this drone shot of going down Hollywood Boulevard. Uh, where there's, you know, thou- the whole, all of Hollywood Boulevard is packed and it's this over overhead shot. 
and everyone uses that image right as being like mm-hmm. this is a this is what the protests mean and you know you can't see anyone's face right it's a iconic you can see like the chinese Grumman's chinese theater in that shot mm-hmm. and you can see all this sort of stuff and i think that we're already in the process of sort of reducing everything that is happening yeah. into those types of images and selecting them out yeah. in a way that depoliticizes them and that they accept like i i don't think it'll take 10 years and in, in or 20 years i think it'll take three years like you know just my perspective on it because the tools in which we use to disassemble protests and images of dissent and to to turn them into commodities is just so much faster now yeah right? it's like protests are still happening and the yeah. nfl fucking nfl is using like images of protests right <laughs> like um to, to, to say what? I have no idea what they're trying to say about right. it, except like, don't get mad at us, right? right. And I, I think that sort of stuff is extremely powerful, right? Like, and I, I don't, I think that in terms of white flight, in terms of all the things that might happen, do you really think that that's going to happen like in any city other than like Portland? Or, you know, or do you think, do you think people will move out of Kenosha, Washington? Do you think, uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin? Do you think that, that there will be people, you know, everyone in New York City is going to move out to move out to uh, Maplewood, New Jersey, because they're afraid of, uh, <laughs> you know, like, like woke schooling or anything like that. Like, I, I just think that we'll forget a lot about this. I'm not saying that's good, by the way. I'm saying it's bad. <laughs> yeah, I no, think I it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm, ye- I'm yelling at the listeners. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I, hmm. I mean, in, in response to your specific question, I don't think there'll be the same kind of white flight patterns because that's already kind of happened. And the white flight occurring right now is honestly in response to coronavirus out of city. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, but listen, I think the riots, even this time around, have shaken up law enforcement, have shaken up certain propertyed people's views of what the state is for. I think that could be lasting. I don't know yet. Yeah. It'll take a while to see, like, um, what what young people do when they grow older. And, like, you know, mm-hmm. do, do they continue to demand these things or do they just actually buy property and decide they actually like the police now? Um, well, can we go back to the one thing I, I was going to ask earlier was, do you, did you guys have the sense this week or last week with 9-11 stuff that I had felt like mm. Americans had stopped talking about it every, <laughs> a few years ago? Like whenever 9-11 happened, I might see like a tweet, you know, an, or, or an article, but it felt heavier than normal this year. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if it is because it was like this sort of indirect way of getting at Trump, right? And they're, they're politicizing 9-11 to make it really about Trump and coronavirus. I don't know. I mean, you guys, and, maybe, maybe and, I just like didn't consume the news the same way this year, but it felt like Americans had actually gotten over it, hmm. quote unquote, right? They'd stopped talking, writing these like, long commemorative pieces about it every every september am i wrong it definitely felt more intense than the last few years yeah i think that that's right so i I think it's i was like why in part i think in part because it's uh you know we're in a nation building quote-unquote moment and that people are thinking a lot about what the country means and other moments of crisis and so you know, the last moment of great national crisis was 9-11. I think that's what people are comparing it to in terms of this. That's why they're talking about it so much. Um, mm. But, like, 2008 was a bigger crisis. I know. Right. Than the coronavirus? But I guess if you're no. Like, no. 9-11. <laughs> oh. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, I guess, but not not in the ways the that it's felt count, by though. most elites, people. Right? Not for elites. Yeah. Well, not, but I mean, not elites, but like it's just people watching the news too and being afraid of things, right? 2008 uh, was an economic disaster, but that was felt by, you know, hundreds of millions of Americans. But it wasn't like, <laughs> it was like, it was abstract in the sense that it was like yeah. a housing crisis in Wall Street. It wasn't like somebody rammed some buildings in or like the Chinese brought a virus in, right? Like this is a, the, the <laughs> levels of, the levels of destruction might not be comparable, but right. the levels it's of the fear are different. It's more about the fear. Yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Well, can I, I, can I, just an aside here, Tammy, I don't want to cut yeah. you off. I just want to say this quickly. Uh, people need to stop comparing body counts to 9-11. It's so fucking stupid. You know, like every day I see some tweet being like, the state of Florida know, has terrible. lost more people in the last month than 9-11. Yeah. Who gives a shit? I don't you know? even like, understand why. Yeah. They're, they're, okay, anyway, that, that was my thing. Andy, uh, Tammy, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I was just going to say, I, I actually think the 9-11 thing happens every year in a kind of similar way. And I think okay. maybe it's just because, I don't know, in New York, I just see it a lot. But I do think yeah. so this year to me it felt the most out of place that it Because happened. we're so far removed from it or No, because um the kind of nod to American values that it contains seems see. so obviously flimsy right now and empty that yeah, the the cognitive dissonance of the commemoration this year to me was huge. Right. Hmm. Yeah. I I agree with that. It was it was so weird. Yeah, especially with the NFL starting and you know, the... <laughs> no, I'm all, all serious. Your reference points are just completely yeah. mixed up. <laughs> well, the NFL being like the number one supporter of the troops right. and the great symbol of American patriotism uh, in America, I don't think it's really debatable. Like sure. uh, people yeah. can support the troops and say the army, but they don't watch the army every Sunday. You know? Yeah, <laughs> like so. Um, yeah, and. It was very strange, I think, with the, like, remember 9-11 things that were happening. But mm-hmm. um, I don't know. I think part of it is fueled by nostalgia. Andy, to answer your question about why, I think people want to remember American exceptionalism. I think people want to remember, yeah, right. like, Rudy Giuliani's response. I think people want to remember oh George God. Bush throwing a strike straight down the center of the plate in Yankee <laughs> Stadium a few days after 9-11. <laughs> And the thing that the thing that they want to remember the most, or the thing that they're the most weepy and and nostalgic over, is this sense that we got over it. Yeah. You know mm. that the country climbed out oh, of okay. it. Okay, that makes sense. And that right now we are not climbing out of this current crisis. And they're like, well, maybe maybe everything will be fine. <laughs> you know? Right. Like maybe, like, okay. No, maybe so... maybe sports will resume. Maybe Broadway will get, go back online. You know, in a yeah. few days, maybe the country will like pick itself back up. And we'll enforce all these sorts of things to address, you know, quote unquote, whatever yeah. is going to end on public mm-hmm. health or China yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And that things are going to get better. I think that's why people are a little bit weepy and maudlin about 9-11 this year. Yeah. But um, I, I think that that's probably an understandable impulse, at least for me. Like, I kind of get why people would want to feel that way, even if I completely disagree with them about, you know, yeah. what 9-11 sure. means. Yeah. I mean, this is the transition to Paul Krugman, right? We should talk about his tweet. Oh, boy. And, and, yeah, and you got to let me do this more seamlessly. 
<laughs> you're like the you're like the producer I of the like say. when I when I saw a TV show like uh, Andy's this, holding up a giant. This, this is what it would right be now. like. I would my producer who I love by the way, who's like a wonderful human being. She would always kind of like be in the back, and I could tell by the way that she was looking <laughs> to to just move, you know. But you know, she did not get on the microphone and be like, "All right, now we got to transition <laughs> to this thing that we." Have I felt like we were just talking around it. Like that's what we mean when oh. we say 11 right? No, well, I think that we had a. People, I think we had an interesting discussion about nine eleven without going straight to the uh, bullet points on the on this on the on our nets. On our right um, now. <laughs> wow, I've tried to find this and I found that 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 it said this tweet is from an account you muted. So apparently, I've muted Paul. Kruger, but, um, <laughs> okay, so Paul Krugman was in the was in the. I I, I have almost everyone in media muted. I have like twenty eight hundred people muted. Wow. Uh, Paul Krugman was in the was in the news uh or he was on the you know in the cancel news i guess if they, they should really start something like that <laughs> so cancel bulletin of like people who are getting canceled but he he was getting canceled because he put out a tweet about how um in response to 9-11 saying that the anti-muslim response in the united states was not that bad right hmm. and his his i, I want to talk about this for two reasons the first is that his point was essentially that like uh that bush came out and said some shit Right. And that right. was that was the point one. And the second point he had was hate crime statistics and that they didn't really go up very much. Now, both of these are like I, this is not a personal attack on Paul Krugman. Like, I actually don't have that much opinion on Paul Krugman. But like uh, these two things are like, you know, they're they're things that should be discussed. So the first thing we're going to talk about is like Bush Bush uh, saying it's OK. And the reason why I want to talk about this is because, like, I, in the context of today, outside of just abstractly dunking on Paul Krugman, is like, I sometimes think about when people say, like, all these hate crimes are happening because Trump says China virus, you know? Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's true or not. And actually, I'm very skeptical that that's true, right? I don't think that the, those words lead to that. But what do you think? Like, do you think that, like, do you think that Krugman is right that it showed that it was indicative of anything that that uh, George Bush went out and said? You know some very kind things about Muslim Americans, um, and to you know not try to not stoke, uh, you know, like Islamophobic animus. Yeah, it wasn't. But even if Bush didn't, right? Fox News did, or all these sort of the sort of conservative voices did. Sure, but I'm talking about Bush specifically. Right. Like, does it doesn't mean anything that he didn't do. No, that. no. I it mean. Then you're just falling back into this thing about all a president is, all a leader is, is their performance. Mm -hmm. But he had the entire, he mobilized the entire state apparatus against Muslims and against people who look a certain way and people from certain countries. So what does it matter that he was like, be nice to your neighbors? These are Americans. It, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Andy, what do you think? Do you think it was, do you think it was meaningful? Do you think uh, at all to have the president, you know, in this moment when he, yeah, I'm no, sure that Trump, yeah. Trump would have said some crazy shit. And, yeah, you know, Bush no, didn't. right. And I think this is the difference you know, speculatively of like Bush being quote unquote like old money and like being genteel and a gentleman. Mm -hmm. And that's why he gets re rehabilitated uh, surprisingly. Right. right. He's been like embraced by the Obamas and by all these like Paul Krugman types as oh, well. Yeah. He was a terrible president, probably like much worse than Trump in terms of like policymaking. Right. In terms of like starting wars. Um, but, you know, he like. Um, is he like, he knows how to behave and not be like not say the like, rude things and uh, I think that's the difference I think that's a big difference or that for a lot of people that is the difference between him, between him and Trump 
right? That Trump is like the loud, brash, says like really uncomfortable things, whereas Bush just kind of, you know, he's, I mean, is it, was that fix- true though? How old were you during the Bush era? Because like, I think because <laughs> no. he, he was that was his reputation that he was like an idiot who just said no, whatever was for sure. He mind. wasn't he was an idiot, but I don't think like he wouldn't say China virus, would he? Feel, I mean, I think that would... I think that I think that people would have like if we had the same media apparatus now that we have back then that they would have fixated fixated on tons of things he said that were kind of like that, right? They were whole... a different character though. Like it was it was accepted no. that he was a dum dum, but he was a dum dum in a dynasty that knew how to play by certain right. rules at the country club. Whereas right. Trump is like the drunk frat interlocutor, you know, at the gate. So I think that I think. Of course, Bush had that. We were all like, oh, my gosh, he's such an idiot. He doesn't know how to talk. In some ways, we were critiquing that performance. But right. also, retroactively, we've cleaned up his speech. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. the point Andy was there's making. That. And there's also, like, people, I think even Will Ferrell has said, like, he kind of regrets portraying him as this lovable frat, frat exactly. boy. Yeah. Right? Or, like, that Jacob like, Weisberg, yeah. Jacob Weisberg Bushism stuff, mm-hmm. which uh, I remember, like, I was in high school at the time. And I was like, I can't believe the president is this stupid. But... Right. I don't know, in a way it might have like made it much more of a like novelty act than this like mortal threat to our safety, you know, that the president said stupid things. Um, yeah, so it was, it was almost, yeah, it was, it was always kind of like bizarrely sanitized compared to, compared to, you know, Trump where every, every, every malapropism is like, exa- you know, completely fixated on by the media. Yeah, and he was separated from, um, he was separated from like the evil part of what people thought that his presidency did by yeah. the fact that people didn't th- thought he was too exactly. stupid to yeah. even think of the ideas. Exactly. Like, so that is that is a bad guy, right? Yeah, that is a difference, yeah. right? People think like Trump is signing executive orders because he's watching Fox News, which is true, right. you know. But um, and the things that actually pass are stuff that you know, obviously somebody in his ear from Wall Street or from. Um, you know, some corporate interests are telling him like all the environmental deregulation stuff that he just right. passes and nobody even notices, yeah. right? Like, like it's not like he's watching Fox News and decides, oh, I'm going to, I just watch a segment about the, you know, it's not like the critical race theory bill that he did, right? <laughs> where, where he's probably reading Twitter. Um, you know, there's somebody, there's people pushing him to do certain things and he just does them. But um, I don't know. I the, yeah. In terms of, you know, what our original conversation point was, which was about, memory i i do think i the, the reason why i'm interested in what is going to happen to trump is because what has happened to bush yeah right exactly. and then, like it it took four, it, like it was like 12 years ago it's not that long ago or it was yeah. what um he, he was being rehabilitated when trump got elected it was like less than a decade oh yeah no no i, I i'm i'm talking about like right, he yeah. was in office 12 right, years right, right. ago yeah. and um you know like there was a painting. Do you remember, like, when everyone's going crazy because he was doing those paintings, which yeah. I will say, are, you know, admittedly are charming. They're, char- <laughs> they're charming paintings. <laughs> you, you own a couple, actually. <laughs> I can't afford. I can't afford them. But they are. They're like kind of like you know. If my dad started painting those, I would be charmed. Yeah, what I'm sure saying. Like, they're they're charming little paintings. Um, but <laughs> that was. I I feel like that was a big moment in his rehabilitation. It really like, was. He, like people are like, oh my god, he makes Whoever these funny little paintings. It's like genius, you know. <laughs> know. Like, oh look at this coffee white dog. Or like, like, when did when did he he and Michelle like hugged at a State of the Union oh, address god. or something? They held yeah. hands, yeah. Oh, yeah, his, his it's it's amazing how quickly everyone oh. has decided to just forgive him. This is a guy who killed like millions of people yeah. in the Middle East. You know, it, it's somebody who 
who created a like a domestic surveillance system that and the infrastructure of of all this stuff that everybody hates right now which is like yeah. social social media spying like you know like uh all this sort of stuff that, that people blame for the yeah destabilization of democracy started under you know i mean a lot of it started under bush yeah and uh we just forgot well, it all that played his role certainly but yeah. i mean to your point do yeah. you think cheney would ha- find it harder to be rehabilitated like Bush has oh been rehabilitated God. because precisely because he isn't actually those things are not attributed to him, right? They're attributed did you, to his. Did you see the movie? The vice. The I didn't movie, see that. The, oh, the change. No, I, I don't. I think that it was. Uh, I, I think that if you ask people who made that movie, they would say that it was a that it was like uh, fair and harsh takedown of Dick Cheney. But any movie that you make about somebody, you know that shows them within a human context with their family is obviously going to be humanizing in some sort of way. And um, that's fine if it's like a verite documentary, which shows them actually in those, all, all, although obviously those can be extremely manipulated. For but, sure. uh, but when it's like a scripted film, you know, like it, it's just kind of like, I don't know. I think it does serve to humanize Cheney in a way, but uh, mm-hmm. you know, like things like, oh, well, I had to make this decision for my daughter. Like I didn't want my family to be out because my, you know, and yeah, anti-gay things. And now the family is like totally fine with it. <laughs> you know, like there's like, they had, they hesitated for like a year. <laughs> and, oh, well. then, yeah. and then, and now they're like, then the, the, they went back to what they were. And, and for that, we're supposed to forgive like the guy for everything. I know. Right? No way. Um, but the problem uh, with Cheney is like, no, most people don't know who he is, right? Like most people just know kind of the main figureheads. And I think that's what's so frightening about the Trumpian moment is that once you ascend, the cleanup is like contained within the office, you know? And that's that's why the work of that we're trying to do is so hard. Cause like oh. you, I, I mean, this is a very silly example, but like at the place I was working when Trump was elected, like the first couple of times we had to print like President Trump, President Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah, like, I know. It sounds ridiculous, but like in, yeah. in the magazine, it was extremely. I think I cried. I think a few of us cried. Like, oh man. In other words, oh, like wow. just that kind of like, liter- just that visual yeah, like yeah. legitimation through the language of it, right? So like, yeah. the genies of the world will always get away with their shit because it doesn't yeah. actually matter whether they're evil, yeah. you know. But the Bushes and the Trumps and the Reagans and all these people just will are like automatically okay, and that's I, you know it's so scary. the 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 question that I had about this is like uh, is not whether, or, and then we can get to the second part of the Krugman tweak about hate crimes. But like, do you think that we will re- try and rehabilitate Trump, or do you think that we will try and forget Trump? Because those are the only two yeah. options that I see. Like, I don't see a thing where we have like one moment of history where we have decided, like the Vietnam War, that it was. You know, I think the Vietnam War is the only thing in recent history where everybody collectively agrees that it was a mistake, and it's seen as like a dark point in our history, quote unquote, by by everyone. Anyone reasonable sees that. I don't think there are people out there being like. Like, I remember when we were in, in when I was in middle school. I had this uh, t- teacher, history, like whatever, social studies, whatever the fuck the class is called. And uh, he would say, like, we've never lost a war as America. And people would be like, well, what about Vietnam? And I remember he said this amazing thing that has stuck in my head ever mm. since. He's like, well, we tied that one. What? <laughs> he called it a tie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Um, but, 
Um, so even that is like an admission. Like just that guy saying it's a tie means that everyone That's thinks incredible. it's not a tie. I don't think I don't think that uh, I actually don't think that the Trump administration is going to be like that. I don't think that people are going to I don't think that people that everyone collectively is going to think of it as a mistake. I think that we're just going to forget that it happened. Well, the Republican Party is going to want to keep his voters, so they're not going to trash him. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Like They're not going to be like that was a mistake. Right. There's even if they're pushing even if they completely repudiate everything that he says quietly like it's not yeah they're not gonna be like hey yeah you guys were a bunch of idiots you know (laughs) i can't believe you fell for this fucking moron you know like (laughs) (laughs) so that's yeah so andy that 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 contributes to what that contributes to like fox news it contributes to conservative media it could uh everyone like ben shapiro i mean uh, the people who are huge in trump's gonna have a He's going to do what he wanted to do in 2016 in the first place, which is have his own media empire built around his personality. Yeah. He's still he's yeah. not going to go into retirement. <laughs> he's yeah. going to be in our life. It's going to be awful. Yeah, that's yeah. true. <laughs> uh, he might be even more present in our life because now he can, you know, not that he doesn't just say whatever crazy shit he wants now, but he could really say whatever crazy oh shit he God. wants now. Um, Tammy, like what? Like, God. do you do you think we'll do you think we'll remember it in in some way or do you think we'll or do you think we'll rehabilitate trump or do you think we'll forget him or do you think that we'll condemn him like uh across the board i don't know i'm so scared like the history book thing that i keep obsessing about your your guys's kids history books like i am worried it's going to be a kind of like andrew jackson like greatest hits type situation where you know there's a couple of bullets of stuff he actually did well and then the rest might be like oh, but the American state was sturdy enough to survive even that, right? So that, to me, is like a scary, likely outcome. Um, I guess that's the forgetting part that you're talking about. The way it's uh, processed through, you know, what Andy would call the elites. <laughs> I'll just call the media, right? The <laughs> premium tier media. I think we'll be exactly what, or the liberals. Can we say liberals? Yeah, we can say I that. think, Andy, you're right at the beginning that they will that they will sort of defang this almost immediately and that they will they will sort of say that it was a bad thing that happened and that we need to learn and they'll use that as a way they'll use the most excessive racist parts of it in an identitarian way to get away from all the other things that they don't want to change which is like you know healthcare in this country uh the dominance of silicon valley in our lives like all the things that they as neoliberals want to keep they will distract away from that with questions about how racist trump was i think that's probably what will happen in terms of like the mainstream media that it'll be this blight but it'll be a racial you know it'll be a blight about race and maybe in that way the image of uh george floyd dying will be replicated throughout hollywood and throughout the media in the same way that the image of rodney king being beat was replicated through Hollywood in a very specific sort of way. I think that's what will happen. Mm. Um, and I think that that stuff is probably powerful. And it's not to say that we should just throw all that away, but I do think it will be defanged and taken away from economic solutions doesn't sound about right. Yeah. I, I, like in 2026, Disney will release, you know, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda's <laughs> newest, doc, newest, newest hit, hit musical, which is like, Four black people and 
to like two indigenous people playing with the Trump cabinet, you know, uh-huh. singing, singing a bunch of fucking songs, and like you know the the uh, the the hero played by Manuel Miranda is like you know some whistleblower inside of the Trump administration right. who is always just like a. He was just always like a dutiful, lonely clerk in the in the Department of the Interior <laughs> who had started out under, uh, you know, started out under Bill Clinton and had worked his way through, and then he's going to be this like he's hero the savior character. The yeah. Yeah, but the plot of that musical Donald... has to be like two hundred and fifty thousand deaths. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know what Blue Manuel Miranda is going to do with that. That'll be like a montage. I don't know. So yeah, it'll be a montage. Yeah, it'll be a montage. <laughs> Coronavirus, you know. Um, where are the tests? You know, like <laughs> states. Uh, yeah, I don't know. The county health departments are not distributed tests correctly. Nursing homes, like it'll just be that shit, you know. Um, totally absolve Cuomo, Damn, you know. Jay, that's like, grim. Andrew Cuomo will be played by like uh you know like Chris Cuomo know, like, yeah David Diggs or something like that no no they can't be a white I actor see, <laughs> oh my god the Billy Manuel Miranda coronavirus <laughs> musical makes me want to actually get coronavirus <laughs> like it's like I, like I would never want to watch that sounds fucking horrible um Jesus it'll probably happen yeah and um everyone will applaud it and it's fine you know I don't know. Like, what are we supposed to do? Uh, all right. Is there um, the second? Okay. Going on to, you know what, Andy, you should have pushed us as the <laughs> producer to get to the second part because I think everyone has forgotten about Paul Krugman. But I want to, you know, I, I think that the question of hate crime and Paul Krugman and his economist brain saying, like, I'm finding a data point from the FBI and I'm using it to prove my point and that all of you are wrong is like crazy because. Yeah. You don't need to know a lot about hate crime statistics to know that hate crime statistics provided by the FBI are absolute bullshit. And it's not because like of psyops or whatever like that. It's because what you're essentially de- detailing is a system of voluntary reporting that is every single police department in the country. And they get to determine what is a hate crime and what is not a hate crime. And sometimes they don't even, they don't bother, even when they think that things are hate crimes, they actually forget to report them to the FBI because like, you know, it's like bureaucratic paperwork. And so every single study of hate crime statistics from everywhere, the right, the left, like every single person, the consensus is that hate crime statistics by the FBI are absolute bullshit. They don't tell you anything. It's like and sexual assault the, statistics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it, it means nothing. Like there is a number that exists, but that number is completely meaningless. And you could see like a four times rise in hate crime statistics in America. And it, all it would actually mean is that maybe like three municipalities in the country decided to like unload their, uh, their backlog of, of incidents, mm-hmm. or they changed the way that they reported things, or they right. changed like a form that they filled out. And that leads to like huge fluctuations in the numbers, because the numbers are so low. Now, Paul Krugman, I imagine don't doesn't didn't know any of this, because I think that when he was getting canceled, he probably went out and like googled a yeah. bunch of stuff or had it, you know, and he didn't really bother to look in Look, we've all done it, you know, no shame to him. I've done it myself where I've been like, oh, no, I'm getting canceled. I got to Google some shit about like Sonic Youth or something like that because I actually don't know what the band is. (laughs) um, um, We've all done it. But with him, you know, he could not have picked the worst thing to uh, to highlight because 
I, I did a story about hit card statistics once for the show, and I was, uh, I remember I went and I interviewed this guy in Boston at Boston University, and he was telling me this story because he, he was a guy who went out and tried to figure out what was actually going on with hit card statistics. He went, he's told me about this town in California where he went, and the sheriff's department did not, somebody was getting crosses burned in their yard. Right. Like, which, you know, is a hate crime. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the sheriff at the time, like, was like, well, they're little crosses. You know, it's not big crosses. Cr- <laughs> yeah. And so he didn't report the hate cr- as incredible. a hate crime because the, cause the crosses weren't as big as what he thought was a hate crime. That's wow. what, that, that's what that's determines what it, hate yeah. crimes or not. Yeah. Um, well, Jay, do you want to lay it out a little more clearly? So there were two tweet threads. So the first one said. Oh, yeah. The first one was talking about how. Uh, I think we did this earlier. The first one yeah. was talking about how there was uh, not a rise in anti-Islamic, uh, not as much of a rise in anti-Islamic sentiment in the United States as Paul Krugman would have Right, like uh, we believed. dealt with this pretty well kind of thing. Yeah, and, um, and the second part was when he was getting, you know, I would say canceled in a way that <laughs> is pretty rare. I mean, people were very mad, I think for justifiable reasons yeah. about this, that... Uh, and, you know, they're bringing up what a lot of what we brought up, which is that, you know, you started fucking war. Yeah. You started two wars, you know, like. Uh, but even but, if you ignore that part, which is absurd, obviously, like yeah. the stuff that was happening, like in like mosques and like yeah. college, yeah. like Muslim clubs and, you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. It's yeah. So and it, is, it is it, like this like weird anti-Islam, like. Uh, Islamophobic like jingoism that started up right with like renaming shit and just like what are you talking about but like you know I I think I I wanted to talk about this for two reasons the the one we just talked about the second one it's just like how do we how should how do you process like the hate crimes against Asians American stuff right now now that we're seven months into coronavirus at the beginning it was a huge talking point and I remember it's something that I was afraid about too you know even living because you would read about this stuff and generally like it was happening everywhere. It wasn't just happening like, you know, in Alabama or whatever. It was happening in San Francisco. It was happening New York and in Los Angeles and New York. Um, in fact, it seemed to be happening more in those places than in other places. And, you know, there are a lot of reasons you can theorize that. But I imagine it's just because in part the people who are getting attacked there at least have some sort of network to get the story out, whereas people getting attacked in other places don't right but um what, what do you think about that now now that we're seven months in because mm. a lot of it is being a lot of it is being uh sort of formalized and discussed in the same way right spiking hate crimes against asian americans right if we're skeptical against one do we have to be skeptical about the other I don't. I don't really think there's a lot of documented cases um, recently. There were some at the beginning, right? And there was like video camera evidence of some of them, but um, I don't know. Like they they're still happening. They are. Yeah. But you don't have like the incidents of like certainly not on the scale of like the Islamophobic stuff in the 2000s, right? Oh yeah, for sure. It feels yeah. very different than that. Yeah. For. Um, um, I guess looking back on it for me, well. Looking back, I know it's still happening, but looking back on kind of like, I guess, what we thought was a spike moment in Asian hate crime, hate crimes against Asian Americans. Um, my feeling is that it was a, an object lesson in how kind of provisional our belonging is or whatever, right? That's sort of like Asian American reading and that it was chilling 
you know, and that I think like, especially for, I think first gen people and people who are not sort of, you know, squarely American seeming, it was especially frightening. Um, I think as we've discussed on the show, it also taught us a lot about what the Asian American reaction is to that and like what that revealed about our politics. Right now, I'm thinking about it more as an artifact of a time when America was extremely desperate to blame and now we can't do it anymore because it's so obviously our fault that we killed 250,000 people in our country. Do you, do you think that's true? I do you think, think that, that do you yeah. think that most that if you walked outside in Montana and you drove 10 <laughs> minutes outside of Missoula and you asked, you know, is it my fault that the coronavirus is here that the person would would say no? <laughs> I think it would be yeah, I think it would be much harder for them to say yes. I don't know exactly I, yeah, who they would blame, that, yeah. but I think, no, I think in our bubbles, you wouldn't say that. I think there are a lot of people in the country that still hold China, some big entity called China, responsible. And, you know, all the polling data suggests that it's still like a strong talking point. Yeah. Um, and something that is obviously, and I think, you know, Trump's going to lean further into it. I don't think the Democrats are countering it. Um so I think, yeah, we, we believe, Tammy, I, I agree, like, we believe, like, it's, like, implausible to blame China for people who actually, like, read, you know, are reading, like, you know, hours of this stuff every day. But I think for a lot of the country, like, it's still the, I told you last week, like, the, the local politicians in Pennsylvania are still running, like, Make China Pay as their central campaign slogan. I think it has currency for a lot of those people. Yeah. Okay. Um. Yeah. How do you think that, what do you think the lasting legacy of that will be within, you know, Asian American people, like this, this moment of intense hate crimes where people are afraid of it. And for our listeners, I want to highlight one thing, which is that, and I think this is the important distinction, which is that there's a way that that's covered in the press that, that uh, in the American English press, right? Where that, where it is occasionally mentioned and you see a bunch of people on Twitter talking about it and those people are usually Asian and at the beginning it, it tended to be like media people saying well somebody called me a mm-hmm. chink for the first time yeah. or somebody like uh, and they wrote a lot of essays about it and that's how it's experienced and then there are people who are detailing hate crimes and sort of logging them into a voluntary reporting system right, and sort of mapping them out in a data sort of way. Um, but I don't know if either of those will really matter compared to what the response has been in foreign language or you know asian mm-hmm. language like WeChat, media yeah. yeah like wechat yeah. And, and within that what the story seems to be andy correct me if i'm wrong but the story seems to be that this is not bush's fault for saying china virus right and i'm sorry not trump's, trump's fault for saying china virus this is not about like anti-asian immigration it is certainly not a question about uh about like um, about uh, our conditional Americanness and the perpetual stranger <laughs> question, right? There, that a lot of the the people on WeChat, a lot of the sort of Asian language media stuff, which is much more conservative, seems to be blaming other minorities, right? It's like saying that lawlessness is the problem, you know? It's oh, really? Because like, well, yeah, sure, it's just the sort of that's extremely a racist stuff. That's a distinct and, question, though, than like the coronavirus itself, right? Yeah. What do you mean? Like I'm, they're, I'm they're, talking about the I'm talking about the lasting impact of this of right, like okay, what sure. the of what the hate crimes will be. Okay, like the question about hate crimes. Oh, I see. I see. Americans. They're blaming. Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah, 
So I, I'm, I'm asking, you know, I, I actually don't have an opinion about this, uh, but do you think, but it has crossed my mind that perhaps the lasting impact will be yeah. that uh, will be a processing of this through a way in which most of the people yeah. who like are not talked about in the media, which is most people yeah. end up blaming this on, you know, like lawless black people and lawless oh, Latinos. Because yeah. like, if you look at the statistics on, not the statistics, but you look at the numbers on, how viral a piece goes on Asian media, like a video goes. If it's like a Asian person being harassed by a white person, it doesn't make that big of a deal. Mm, but if it's an Asian person yeah. being harassed by like a black or Latino person, it's like fucking millions and millions yeah. and millions of views and conversations yeah. about it. Okay. And so I, I that that, that yeah. yeah that that's my question is like, will it is this actually going to be blamed on? <laughs> you know, somehow is somehow like anti-Asian yeah. racism and hate crimes in this during this period. I don't and it's fueled in, in part because, like, the, you know, like there's a kernel of truth in this, which is that, like, if there is a black person who is attacking an Asian person, a white person attacking an Asian person, every time the person is white, the person will identify it as being white, right? And if the person isn't, then they won't, right? Because they know that it's not politically correct to, or it's a difficult conversation to have. And so the people fixate on that small contradiction and they turn it into, like, the only truth out there mm-hmm. is that like everywhere in New York City, black people are attacking Asian people, which is not true, yeah. you know, but uh, but that's how they sort of process it. I'm, I I am worried um, yeah. that perhaps this will be the lasting impact of that I one see. moment in terms of hate crimes, yeah, which no. would be that it actually will make it more mm. people more racist. I did, I did see a little bit of that. I don't know the overall picture. I think one thing I will say, though, I don't know if we talked about this on the show, but like most people in speaking Chinese languages had no problem saying China virus or Wuhan virus. Um, and the whole like policing of saying coronavirus versus China virus was mostly like an English language, liberal <laughs> obsession. And like, um, and, and, and you could ask someone, and I assume, right. If someone speaking Chinese saying this would either say like, it has no negative. It's not a stigma thing for us at all. It's just like, that's what we call it. Or it would be a stigma thing. It would be like there are Taiwanese, Hong Kong, or even, you know, Chinese immigrants who hate the Communist Party yeah. and, and right. really want to blame the Communist And they, they have much less inhibition about that, right, than, yeah. uh, you know, a sort of, a sort of liberal who's yeah. like, don't, don't blame China. <laughs> <laughs> well, because they actually can see the distinctions in their right. own heads. They're natural. It's not just like in the terms of like a liberal who's mad about it, where it's like it kind of feels like you're <laughs> criticizing a POC. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, that's interesting i haven't seen that in the korean press as much i i've seen the hate crimes be collapsed under a general assessment of american incompetence and american failure Mm -hmm. this idea of just the lowered standing of the u.s in many asian people's eyes yeah um i i guess i just i my sense with all of this is always that that's just how it always ends up right that um things are just processed in ways that are convenient. And I think that the most convenient way for Asian Americans to process this is to just blame it on, you know, lawlessness in black people <laughs> than to blame it on whether or not they actually fit in the country or not, which is a much harder question. Well, you're talking you know? about like the first generation foreign language social media as opposed to... Yeah, like, yeah people who well, use WeChat. I don't use WeChat, right, right. you know? Like, uh, I don't know anyone who does use WeChat outside of talking to their family. Yeah. You know, like, like right. nobody... Like, do you know people who use it for news and stuff? Like, probably not, right? Like, first generation, like, parents' generation or recent yeah. immigrants, but not ABCs, right? Not second generation. Yeah. Um, 
Okay, let's go to our listener question and let's wrap this up because we are Tammy has to go and we're we're running a little bit long. Okay, so we have a question this week. We want to do this once a week. I know that we always say it and we run out of time, but I think we should because one of the things that is the most satisfying, gratifying for us is that we have a very active listenership who sends us a lot of emails and a lot of tweets and a lot of uh, a lot of interesting messages that mm-hmm. are surprising to us in the terms of the thoughtfulness that they come out with and and sort of the ways in which that seems like you as listeners are also interrogating a lot of the same questions that we are in many ways in ways that are much more profound and and uh uncomfortable than you know what the three of us can do here (laughs) talking so uh this question is uh from um a guy who identifies himself as generational yuppie um (laughs) Gestational yuppie, I'm sorry. Okay, so, hello, I've been listening for a few weeks now and working through past episodes, and it's been really clarifying to hear perspective, blah, 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 like, right? Um, Coming from a largely apolitical family background in a vaguely liberal university, I came into a piecemeal leftist politics slowly by reading and taking classes, so the podcast has been a great help in thinking about how to carry these politics forward beyond academics and into real life. Which leads me to my question. You've spoken on the podcast a few times about the corporate class of self-serving yuppie Asians. So many Asians, myself included, come into a sort of radical uh, racial class consciousness in a college, but end up wait, uh, I'm sorry, waltzing themselves into careers spent propping up oppressive structures, finance, consulting, software, etc. Now that I've graduated and I'm about to start my first job, I feel this dread of my impending yuppieification more and more. <laughs> Though I can be critical of my own career choices, I also know that I am functionally the same as everyone else, only saddled with more guilt. This is coupled with the knowledge that many people doing work I respect are in a precarious position economically. I eventually want to do other work, but this is a selfish rationalization for not wanting to do more now. Mm -hmm. How do you think about your career in relationship to your activism? Is there a way to align your politics with a job you know as harmful as possible for the two to coexist coherently? More and more, I suspect the answer to these questions is no. But if there is a workable way to negotiate the two spheres, and what can a uh, in in what ways can a quote corporate Asian agitator seek to foment change? <laughs> okay, uh, Andy, what do you think? <laughs> this is a loaded question. Um, yeah, his advice is, or his 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 attitude of. I want to do more later, but I'm going to make money first. Is basically what my mom told tells me I should have done <laughs> with my life. Um, I, I think I think one thing to be wary of is this question of like, should you make your job activism or should you make, um, um, should you try to make make your job your politics? Let's say, and uh, to some extent that's inevitable and that's going to infiltrate what you do. And you know, we've have online had offline discussions about like when we teach do we tell our students our politics and things like that uh but i do also think like you know apropos the jessica crud conversation from last week there is i do feel like like academics will try to make academia itself like this to be political as academics um almost as a substitute for like doing anything outside of academia doing anything outside of their job and i think that's something to be cautious of right instead of like investing all of your time and diversifying these spaces that are inherently, you know, conservative and traditional, like what maybe you could just do that outside of academia, right? And find, uh, you know, find time to do it outside of academia and just kind of treat your job as your job. Um, so I think that's 
you know, I mean, there's, you know, there's, it's probably going to be a combination of both, but I think there's an extreme where people kind of overly invest into their job um, and make too much out of it when it just seems like it is possible Mm -hmm. perhaps to just kind of do your job. You know, you can't feel guilty just for having to make money to survive and pay the bill, pay the bills. Right. That's like what our, what's, that's what left this criticism is, right. Like that there's a system set up that everyone has to participate in and that there are no free options. Um, we live in a society right um and that's what distinguishes like good leftism from like utopianism which is you know just like just run away from society and do whatever you want and blah 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 which we know is impossible for most people right yeah that's commune (laughs) that's i was i was saying that very personally (laughs) i started i've started reading a lot about jonestown and uh the people's temple and uh it's been a good cautionary tale against the Kang dropout commune. Because <laughs> <laughs> Jim Jones had a lot of good ideas. Also, <laughs> oh boy. I, I actually kind of see, no, I'm, I'm just kidding. Jim Jones <laughs> had a lot of good ideas. But like, um, uh, honestly, it's I the the Jonestown thing is actually almost too triggering for me to, yeah, to read in a, a way lot. because yeah. it's like uh, there's so many children who died in oh Jonestown, you know, yeah. like so many of the kids were taking that kool-aid are being injected by it um and uh i don't know i actually you know this total aside but i did want to talk about it on the show but like it's like i think that jonestown if the people's temple came up right now that it would actually be kind of celebrated because it was so diverse (laughs) you know do you you mentioned that yeah that's right yeah you did i think 60 percent of the people in people's temple in jonestown were black women you know there are a lot of asian people as well um and they were arguing for like a pretty radical, you know, they they were giving all their money to like the Communist Party of the USSR, the USSR and stuff like that. I think that they would have been left as celebrities in the same sort of way. Now, I don't necessarily think that that means that we are ripe for another Jonestown, for God's sake. I hope that's not true. But um, I don't know. These books about Jonestown that I've been reading are pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but the sort of, I think that people have generally erased how influential they were in at the time in terms of politics here in the Bay Area, which became the politics almost at least radiated out everywhere that defined the left, right? Mm. So you have like the hippie movement, you have the Black Panther movement, um, you have the anti-war movement all in the Bay Area. And uh, the the sort of people who got bodies to all those single, all those protests and supported them and discussed it were, um, was the People's Temple. Mm. Did you know that like, uh, did you know that Huey Newton and Angela Davis were like speaking on a loudspeaker like a few days before uh, everyone in Jonestown like ended up killing themselves. Like they sort of called in and were patched through by Jim Jones because really? like they knew Jim Jones. Yeah. And they were like talking about oh, like how, know like, that. you know, you should embrace revolutionary potential. I don't know if that's what Angela Davis said, but that's what Huey Newton said. And well, that, uh, wow. you know, the suicides were seen as like re- quote unquote revolutionary suicides. Yeah. It's good history to know. I've been reading a lot about it and enjoying yeah, it. Wow. Um, <laughs> I don't know how true these histories are, but they're, you know, that I don't know. This chilling. cult stuff is fascinating. Um, okay, so to answer the question for myself, I, I generally agree with Andy. Look, like, I think people fool themselves into thinking that their work is more radical than it is, right? I always qualify my work or I always character. If people ask, what do you do? I say, uh... I write stories for lawyers to read on airplanes, <laughs> right? Now, that might not be true as much now that people aren't as many planes, but that's generally how I thought about my magazine work, right? The people who are going to read it are going to be people who are bored on an airplane, and they're going to be 
uh, taking off and they're going to be like, I'm going to read the New York Times Sunday magazine and they're going to read it and they're going to read a story about it. Like that's the majority of people read it. Uh, and I don't think that those people are going to become radicalized in some sort of way. <laughs> you know, I think that maybe parts of their brain will budge if I've done an extremely good job, but I don't think that my work is ext- is particularly uh, political in that sort of way. And I don't feel that bad about it. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's better than, now, do I think that it is like in terms of the world, a wor- a better job, you know, and does less damage than if I worked at Amazon or Google? No, I think it's roughly the same, mm. you know, and so I don't feel that bad about it uh, because I think that the choices are not between doing journalism and Amazon. I think the choices are between doing journalism and, or Amazon and, you know, doing some sort of like organizing work or actual work like I think my my work is fully corporate and I've just accepted that Hmm. Tammy we do like roughly the same thing is that how you feel about it (laughs) I would say to gestational yuppie first of all like what is it you need to make money for like what is yeah what what level of comfort do you deem appropriate for yourself and why and the reason I ask that is because if you do feel strange about your work, if you feel that there's some sort of fundamental disconnect, because I think some people do want to have politics in their work and want to feel like their work actually does reflect what's inside, then, you know, we need to ask questions about like, well, why not choose, I don't know, social work or union organizing or, you know, some other thing where actually you can make a living, you can raise a family on those salaries. Plenty of people do. And I think, um, my own experience, like, I guess, making certain choices in my life that have not been very lucrative is like, I have some regret around that not being able to like care for my family and stuff like that. But I also feel like I wouldn't have survived doing like, I don't know, consulting or corporate law or something. Yeah. Yeah. Tammy, you had the opportunity, unlike Andy and I, to actually become very (laughs) rich, right? After going to a very exclusive. Well, you guys could have too. High tier <laughs> law school. No, I couldn't have. I didn't. I. I could not have gotten into a good law school. <laughs> I tried. Um, <laughs> like, why? Why did you? Did it ever occur to you that maybe what you should do? Uh, you know, after getting this fancy law degree, is maybe spend five years putting your head down, making partner, cashing out for like four million dollars <laughs> or something like that over the next three years, and then, you know, which is about what it would be, right? If you I like, you would. So, yeah. Yeah, like by the age of like 35, you would be totally comfortable and you wouldn't have to work anymore. Did it cross your mind? No, it didn't. Okay. And I think, yeah, like, I, I don't know, it's it's my own stubbornness maybe on some level too. Like I know I can't function in those environments and I have problems with authority, which have like trailed me in lots of different jobs. Yeah, but also I just don't want to do that. And I think like I, the first lawyering job I had out of law school, I made like $42,000, I think. And it wasn't that great to live in New York City on that, but also it was enough. Hmm. So I guess I, I just hmm. am asking this person to just consider like what is enough to live on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do. I mean, I do wonder. I think what we're also kind of circling around is like our political choices. It could also just be like our individual personality preferences. Definitely, like, that's part right? of it. Like, like you, sure. Tammy. I don't. I think you know. I think about like the like not nine to five, but you know, like. 24 hour law job and think like I, mm-hmm. I don't we might have been competent enough to do it but I I think I told myself early on like I want what I wanted to do is like read books and write about books 
and then um, but then i also kind of subsequently realized like this is a you know massive luxury and that this is just like a preference and it's like you know it's not you know but certainly it's not like what 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 people in the past would say like as a calling right yeah. which is like you're destined to do this and um and i and i wonder i wonder about that and i guess that's my sort of caution that i was saying earlier about like don't conflate your actual um like the political like if you're an academic for instance or a writer or anything um you could write about radical things but just like be be, be self-aware that maybe you're just doing because it, it makes you feel better um and it's like an individual preference it's like almost, almost or that like you just find it intellectually interesting yeah right? but it's like yeah, a consumerist preference yeah. more than like this producer yeah yeah like exactly political position yeah. in society yeah, i also want to push against that because i think like even though jay was you know jay is right that his stuff is mostly read by elites like jay's also has in many cases provided people a certain platform to get important ideas across that i think actually have like a very strong justice component so you know, I think it's also okay to think that your work is like to be self-serious about your work and to think about its political impact and yeah. its content. You know, yeah, it doesn't always work, but like, and you can also okay. like your stuff and, you know, you can no, you do can. what you like <laughs> and be political. Like, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I think I probably oversold the, the, Lawyers the pointlessness of it, but you know, I do think it's no, I, I think that that's generally true, but you know, the, the, the difference is that some of those lawyers work for like, the Obama administration, right? Or they work for the Hillary campaign or they work for yeah. Trump or whatever, right? Um, and that, in that sense, I do think that it is important, but I don't think that, that that's just like, the, that's not me being political. That's what the political value of the platforms that I, you know, the publication that I tend to write for is, right? Yeah. Um, but I, I don't, I don't, I think that in the end, though, you know, to bring this to a, you know, question about, I think that in, terms of Asian immigrants that it's very generational mm. and that uh, they're the second generation does not feel free to pursue themselves in that sort of way generally right like overall they do feel at the need, higher need to have some sort of economic comfort um, because things are a little bit more conditional and uh, I think that our kids will be feel much more free to pursue these sorts of things well I'm seen. talking about me and Andy yeah, if the world still exists, but I think that you know they'll be. I don't hopefully... know. You're not going to be like a tiger dad and be like. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. Well, you two no. have already made choices that would be like third generation choices. So I don't. Your kids need to be like painters or some shit. You know. Right. No, but I would see that's what I'm hoping for. I is hope like so a, too. A for back... No, I'm hoping for a backlash. Oh so no, Jay, come on. So that show just be like my dad is a dilettante. He just sits in the basement recording stupid podcasts all the time and playing video games, <laughs> and like just walks around the yard in his underwear. It's embarrassing. He hasn't worked. He hasn't been to a real job in like 25 years. Yeah, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go be a banker, and then I can be supported. You know, I can yeah. be supported through the, through no, my see. old That's age. That's a long I, ass con, Jay. I know. <laughs> um okay on that note uh i think that we are at the end of our time here thank you for listening um as always you can get in touch with us and we really do appreciate these responses and we'll be reading much more of them we might even dedicate an entire show to answering some of them in a mailbag type of way um and uh you can email us at time to say goodbye pod at (laughs) gmail.com or ttsg pod on twitter our dms are open and um yeah tammy i hope that you stay out of the smoke 
Uh, it doesn't waft over to Montana. It's pretty miserable here. I like hung out with my friends last night or yesterday, and we did our outdoor Sunday football thing that we're. You did do. it even in the smoke. Yeah, and I had a headache. Like, oh so I was outside for like three hours in bad air. I was just like, fuck this. They're not going to take away my fucking sports gambling <laughs> Liberty. on Sunday morning. And uh, my friend brought his kid over. And so we we had the kids playing together in a room with like a heavy-duty air purifier <laughs> inside while the three of us sat outside and watched uh, the head up bell. Wow. I had this massive headache all day, you know, and I think it was from fucking air. Uh, yeah. I was, like, was, was kind of like fake news, you know, whatever. Oh you know, it's like smoking... <laughs> Wait, it's like smoking six cigarettes. I used to smoke more than six cigarettes today. Who gives a shit? And I just had a banging headache all day. So I hope that that air does not get over to you. And Andy, uh, enjoy the fresh air. On the- <laughs>